Well, good morning. It's a, a joy to welcome you this morning to Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. We gather together to worship our God. In, in Psalm 103, we read, As a father had compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And if place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. But with those, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. And so as we gather together, we celebrate Father's Day this morning. Just this picture of that the Father had compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. And like, we all have earthly fathers who, to varying degrees, were not perfect. Right? And we want to celebrate what they have done for us, even in their imperfection, but also celebrate and remember that we have a perfect Heavenly Father who showed perfect compassion to us this morning. There's a couple of things I want to draw your attention to. So, a couple of weeks ago at our at our annual meeting, we approved a tweak to our mission statement here. So our mission statement here, if you're visiting or new or not sure, is like we're a community that strives to reach people with the gospel of Jesus of Christ, uh, gospel of Jesus Christ, grow to be like Christ, and serve others. And so those kind of three key words there, reach, grow, and serve. And so there's, in your bulletin, ways to do each of those things. And so talking about reaching people with the gospel of Jesus. Like one way we can do that is like on the 4th of July, we won't have a service here on the morning of the 4th because you can't get through town. And so we will we'll gather, we'll encourage you to be at the parade in town as we just engage with neighbors who won't normally come here, interact with us. Right? And if you want to serve in another way, you can volunteer to, we're going to distribute water kind of, during the parade or before the parade in order to just kind of bless our community. So if you want to serve the community in that way, you want to reach people kind of through that and just be a blessing to our community, you can contact the church office to, to sign up to do that, or you can donate water. Just drop it off in front of, the, in front of the office, and we would be thankful to just have water to distribute. And a way to send you to grow in our Christ-likeness is, on August 14th, Saturday from 9 to 12, we're going to have a, a membership class here. And so if you have been kind of coming, interested in the church, but want to kind of step more fully into church membership as a way to connect and just plant your flag and say, I'm here, um, you, I'd like to invite you to take part in that. And then finally, the way to serve others. We have VBS coming up in a few weeks here at the end of July. If you want to serve Children serve our family, serve our community by, um, by serving in that way. We'd love to have you. And so if you're interested in any of those things, a couple options. Like one, you have the, the welcome card in the seat in front of you. You can just write down if you're interested in whatever of those things and drop it in the box on your way back, on, in the back of the uh, sanctuary. Right. Or you can send an email to the church office or to me. Or I'm going to hopefully in a couple of days here create an email just with a list of opportunities to serve and to all these things that I'll send out to you. It'll be an easy way to sign up online there as well. 
And there's one other announcement. So next, next Sunday at 3 p.m., we'll have a memorial service here for, for Virginia Elson. And she passed away this past January, but because of all the strangeness of the last year, we're having a memorial service this coming Sunday at 3 p.m. There'll be a reception over at the Writers' Center following that, but we'd invite you to, to take part in that. And with that, let's end our time of worship together. Well, good morning. I ask you to stand. We're going to start out with a song this morning. And happy Father's Day to everybody this morning, Al. Um, his running joke on Mother's Day is always, well, you're not my mother. I don't have to get you anything. And so this morning he got up and I said, happy Father's Day. He's like, well, I'm not your father. You don't have to get me anything. I said, all right, good deal. So <laughs> that's where we're at this morning. So if you would stand, we're going to start some worship this morning on this Sunday morning. Welcome you to Three Lakes and just... Start with some praise this morning. Yeah. 
Good morning. My name is Ian. I'm one of the pastors here. We're excited that you're here with us today. Um, right now would be the time that we normally take offering, but we're not doing that. If you want to give, you can give in the back and on the boxes that are there if you want to worship that way. If you are new or visiting, um, we would like this service to be a gift to you. We, we're, not, we're not looking for your money today, so um, please, um, yeah, you can give in the back if you want to. Would you pray with me? Dear Father God, we thank you for this Father's Day, Lord. We thank you that um, we get to worship you today. Um, We thank you for your picture of what it means to be a father, Lord, that we derive what we see as a good father from. We know that there are people here that that have complicated relationships with their fathers. Some of them are mourning their fathers, or, or some, some just have a hard time with that, Lord. We ask that you would bless them today, give them comfort, give them your peace, um, and help us, Lord, to worship you today through Father's Day. We ask your blessing on our worship Help us to worship well. Help us to be able to stay focused on that. We thank you that it's summer outside and it's, it's just beautiful. What a blessing of a day it is. We ask your blessing on the rest of our time together. And um, we just thank you so much for gathering us here together. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to continue in worship um, as you're standing again. That was a really brief sit-down period, but I'll ask you to stand because I think it's, we can worship a little bit more freely as we're standing for sure. Um, this song, 10,000 Reasons, I think like the second verse is we're talking about Father's Day and how that relates to our relationship to God. The second verse of this song is really a beautiful picture of fatherhood. It says, you're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness, I will keep on singing 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. That slow to anger one, that's a toughie, right? Like, as a parent, being slow to anger is probably one of the hardest things to do, period. But that's what God is to us. He's slow to anger. And I think that's just a beautiful picture of what we're thinking about this morning as Christ is our Father. So please join with us as we sing.
watching right now they they live a couple hours from here and he usually tunes in and watches and um it's an encouragement out there to all you dads too and all of you parents but my dad I think like he planted so many seeds when I was little that are unfolding now as an adult you know and I think that we we take all these little things that we do and it's hard to parent it's hard to get our kids out doing stuff and encouraging them but like I love the UP and I love being outside and all that kind of started when I was little and my dad exposed that stuff to me and the way that he just showed me how to live life is how I'm living life now and my dad's the best like just the best so I just want to just encourage you like as parents what you're doing now even though it's hard and it sometimes is um, just a struggle and you might think that there's nobody rewarding that at this time you know, some of you fathers are old enough to know and to watch what those things have done through the years. And you, you fathers who are younger, you know, you're going to see that. You're going to see how those um, small seeds are going to, you know, you're going to reap big rewards down the road. So just an encouragement to you all. But let's continue worshiping. song we could ever sing, worthy of all the praise we could ever bring, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Open up my 
challenges life brings to us, no matter what trials we face, that we would remember what a great Savior Jesus is, that we would praise Him in the midst of everything, that we praise Him all the day long. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we've mentioned a few times this morning, we're thankful for all that dads you do for in raising up children that know and love God and all you've done. So I thought thinking about like how can we like honor fathers, what can we kind of do to honor them? Like one option was like to some kind of small physical gift, right? But like figure what if with our budget for gifts, you can probably afford whatever we could give you. Like, you don't need another pen. You don't need whatever, right? And so, like, I said, like, well, I'm a dad. What do I want? And the answer was donuts. So, <laughs> there are donuts downstairs for, for fathers and any man in the congregation. You can help yourself on, as you, as you leave this morning. So, help yourself to those. Like, I don't know about I don't know about you, but like, strike me how prone to procrastination I am, and I know I'm not alone. Like, we all probably know. Like, other than these last two weird years, right, like, tax day is April 15th, right? Like, we all know that. It's like ingrained in our consciousness as Americans, and yet, like, in 2015. Twenty-one and a half million Americans filed their taxes the week of April 15th. And like I remember seeing news stories like back before e-filing was common, like 
post offices would stay open late on April 15th, right? And there'd be these long lines of people waiting in line to make sure they got their taxes postmarked on the 15th. Like, you get your W-2s in February at the latest. Right? You, have, you have over two months from that time to get them filed. And like, why would you wait until the last possible minute to finish your taxes? Why would you add all that extra stress to your life? Is the question I ask myself every year on April 15th. Why? Why do that? And for another 13 million Americans, like that two and a half months from February to April 15th isn't enough time. So they file an extension, giving them six extra months until October 15th to get their taxes in. And you would think, oh, six extra months. Like, and there would be a slow, steady kind of trickle, and like, oh, people got their taxes in before that October 15th deadline. It would be a pretty steady thing. But no. Like, of those who applied for an extension, the vast majority of those waited until the week of October 15th to file their taxes. So you can see in this chart, two big spikes. Like, that's when people file their taxes. Like, like why do we do this to ourselves? I think part of the reason is, like, we need the pressure of feeling like we actually need to do something in order to, like, make ourselves do it. Like, maybe you've had the experience of, like, living in a house. Like, there's this, like, long list of things that you would like to do someday. Like, maybe the faucet's a little bit leaky, or they can paint that wall, look better, whatever. Like, there's this list of things, but you never seem to have time to actually get around to doing them. But then, you decide you're going to sell your house, and suddenly you find the time to do all those things. Because you needed to do them, in order to sell the house. And so, like, the house is finally the way you want to do it, just in time for you to never live there again. <laughs> like, like, we are often people who act in response to feeling a need, like a real, genuine need to act. And without that sense of need, we don't always act, even when we probably should. And we see an example of that in Luke chapter 7 this morning. In this passage, we're going to read, we see two people who interact with Jesus. And one of them has a deep sense that they need Jesus. And the other one does not have that sense that they need Jesus. And what we'll see is that our sense of need, our sense of how desperately we need Jesus, determines how we respond to Jesus. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 35 this morning. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. But as you turn there, I want to point out one thing. Our goal as we read the Bible should be to understand the Bible in the way that the original author was trying to communicate it to his audience. Our goal should not be like, well, what does this passage mean for me? But what was the author trying to communicate? There's a couple of things that can stand in our way of answering that question well, of understanding what the author is really trying to communicate. And one of those things that can be a barrier sometimes is like section headings. If you open your Bible to Luke 7, like, and you look at it, like, it probably has different section headings. So in my Bible, Luke 7, 1 through 10, has the heading, The Faith of the Centurion. And Luke 7, 11 through 17 has, Jesus raises the widow's son. Luke 7, 18 to 35, Jesus and John the Baptist. 
And on Luke 7, 36-50, Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. And those headings can be helpful. Right? They can help us find a section we're looking for quickly. Like, I often choose where to start and end my sermons based on where those sections are. Like, they're not random. Right? They're thoughtfully put there by later editors. But they can also hinder us as we try to understand the Bible. Because they can incline us to, to stop at the end of a section. Or to see the next section as kind of disconnected somehow from the previous one. Right, but when Luke wrote the book of Luke, like he didn't put those headings in. Those are added later. Luke didn't even put like chapter and verse numbers in. Like, Luke didn't even put paragraphs in. In fact, like Luke didn't even put spaces between the words when he wrote. Like paper was far too valuable back then to waste space on stuff like that. So he just like crammed them all together and let the people figure out what he was saying. And so, like, Luke wrote his gospel with the idea that it would be read all together in one big story, in one big unit, not one section at a time. And so he expects us to understand what he wrote in the context of what comes before and what comes after what was already written. And when we stop at section headings, we can lose that sense of context. Another thing that can kind of hinder our understanding is like our expectation of chronology. Like we've been kind of conditioned through our history books and whatever else to expect that in nonfiction, like events are told in chronological order. Like things happen one after another. So when we read Luke, we just assume if he wrote something, one event after another, that's the way it happened in real life. Right? That it happened in chronological order. But authors and Jesus' day were far less concerned with how they ordered events, at least in putting them in chronological order. And instead, they, their goal was to weave events together, to tell a fuller, more complete story. They were in very intentional in how they ordered the events to, to contribute to their greater, larger point. And we see an example of that in Luke chapter 7 here. So with that in mind... Instead of starting at verse 36 reading, I'm going to start a few verses back in verse 33 this morning. I want to see, like Luke does something really clever here with this order. So let's take a look at this, starting in verse 33. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and he says, For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and you say, he here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so one of the complaints that the Pharisees had about Jesus was that he came eating and drinking, and that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And one of the ways that Jesus showed that friendship was having meals with people. And so the Pharisees' big complaint about Jesus, one of them, was that he had the audacity to eat with sinners, to share a meal with sinners. And that bothers the Pharisees. He's going to share a meal with sinners? That's what Luke's saying in verse 34. So what happens next? Look at verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at, table, at the table. Like, do you see what Luke's doing there? Like, he's saying, like, yeah, you're right. Jesus does eat with sinners. Like, here's exhibit A, Pharisee. You are the sinner that Jesus eats with. 
Like one of the ongoing themes of Luke's gospel and all the other gospels is like the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. They are sinful, but they don't see their own sin. And Luke's showing that to us here. Like he's, and he's showing us that, like not only with the stories he tells, but also with how he arranges the stories. And so that's the, that's the setting of the rest of this passage. That Jesus is at a meal at a Pharisee's house. A Pharisee who is a sinner, but who doesn't see his own sin. So let's go and read the rest of the passage, picking up in verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. It's such a common little thing, like that meal probably a semi-public event. People can kind of walk in and listen and eavesdrop. So it's not like she was breaking into the Pharisee's house. Verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee had invited him, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered them, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So as we said before, like this story is all about showing us that our sense of need determines how we respond to Jesus. And in this story, we have two kind of key people. We have Simon, and we have the sinful woman. And they have very different senses of how much they need Jesus. And because of that, they respond to Jesus in very different ways. So let's first look at how each of them senses their need. And the place where we kind of see that sense of need most clearly is in the parable that Jesus tells about two, two debtors. Verses 41 and 42 again say, Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? So Jesus tells this parable, and it's clear that 
Simon is the one who owes 50 denarii, and this woman is the one who owes 500 denarii. But to fully kind of understand what's going on here, it probably helps to know what a denarii is. So a denarius or a denarii is like basically a day's wage for a common laborer. And so the one who owes 50 denarii basically owes two months of wages to this money lender. While the one who owes 500 denarii owes like nearly two years of wages. It's like hard to draw direct comparisons because like the value of money changes and like the, the economy between our economy and their economy is way different. But like just to say, for kind of getting our minds around this, that you make fifteen dollars an hour and you work eight hours a day, right? That's a hundred and twenty dollars a day that you make. It's a day's wage, hundred twenty dollars. So fifty days wages would be six thousand dollars. Five hundred days wages would be $60,000. So just imagine, right? There's two people making $15 an hour. And one has a credit card debt of $6,000. One has a credit card debt of $60,000. And then one day, Visa calls. And like, the person, they call the person who owes $60,000. And they tell them, like, eh, you don't owe that money anymore. Just imagine the relief that would cause that person, right? The, the joy that would prompt in that person's heart. Right? like paying back $60,000 when you're making $15 an hour, like it's never going to happen. Like you also have to pay for food and shelter and clothing and life essentials. Like it's not going to happen. Paying back $60,000 on a $15 an hour salary is not going to happen. It's an unpayable debt. On the other hand, if, the, if Visa calls the debtor who owes $6,000 and forgives their debt, like, I'm sure they'd be happy. I'm sure they'd be thankful. But in the back of their mind, there ought to be this little thought, like, that was great, but like, I would have paid it back eventually on my own. Like, I could have gotten there. Like, I could have, could have done that. I could have swung $6,000 over time. Like, Visa didn't save me from an insurmountable lifetime of debt. So Jesus is saying that Simon is like the debtor who owes 50 denarii. He knows, maybe he's not perfect, but he thinks that over time, Simon thinks, over time, by my good deeds, by my righteousness, I'll be able to earn God's favor. I'll be able to pay my own debt based on my own self-righteousness. And that'll be enough to earn me eternal life. And therefore, because Simon thinks that he doesn't understand, he doesn't grasp how deeply he needs Jesus. The thing that Jesus offers, the forgiveness of sins, a way to have your relationship with God restored, like Simon doesn't think he needs those things. He can forge his own relationship with God by his own self-effort. Simon doesn't grasp that he needs a Savior, that he needs Jesus. And of course, he's wrong. The Bible says that no matter, like that none of us are capable of paying the debt our sin puts us in. It doesn't matter how much more righteous you are than other people around you. We all sin. And there is no way for us to be forgiven of that sin by our own good work. We can't earn our way back to God. 
We can never pay the cost of our own debt, even if our debt seems smaller than the debt of other people around us. But Simon hasn't grasped that. He thinks wrongly that he can pay his own debt, so he doesn't sense his need for Jesus. The woman of the story, she's fully aware of her need for Jesus. Three times in the passage, her sinfulness gets mentioned. Verse 37 says that she lived a sinful life. In verse 39, Simon calls her a sinner. And in verse 47, even Jesus said that she has committed many sins. It's like many people think she's probably a prostitute. We can't know that for sure, but that seems to be the general theme here. Right, whatever it is, like she had a life full of sin. This was no secret sin. Like Simon knew about it. Like people in the town knew about it. She was well known for her sinful lifestyle. So she's dealing with double shame. There's the shame that she feels for her sins, for the feeling of in her heart she knows she has broken God's law, she's rebelled against God, she feels that shame. But she also feels the shame of being judged and scorned by others for her sin. And all of this adds up to a woman who desperately feels her need for forgiveness, who desperately senses that she needs to be forgiven, that she is a debtor who owes 500 Denarii. She is so in debt to her sin that she knows there's no digging her way out. That she has nothing to offer but way of her own self-righteousness. And that's true for all of us. Like None of us have anything to offer. But the difference between Simon and this woman is that the woman knows it. She knows she has nothing to offer. She knows she cannot earn God's favor by her actions. She knows that her only hope is if somebody else forgives her debt on her behalf. And it seems that sometime before this event, that this woman had come into contact with Jesus' teaching. Like maybe she had met him, maybe she had heard him teaching somewhere else. And through that interaction, she realized that Jesus is the one who can forgive my sins. Jesus is the one who could give her a clean slate. She had, she had a deep sense that she needed to be forgiven and that she needed a Savior. And then she had discovered that Jesus is that Savior. This woman knew she needed Jesus. So we have our two characters with two very different senses of need. Like Simon might be intrigued by Jesus as a teacher. Like maybe curious about Jesus and the stories he's heard about his healings. But he has no sense right, that Jesus has anything to offer that Simon needs. And the woman, on the other hand, is keenly aware of the depths of her sin and therefore the depths of her need for a Savior. And those very different senses of need lead to two very different responses to Jesus. Let's look first at Simon's response. The first thing you might think about how Simon responded is that he... He invited Jesus over for a meal. And you might think, like, oh, that's a nice gesture. Like he's inviting Jesus into his home. He wants to get to know Jesus. Sounds great. But then the way Simon treats Jesus when he arrives right, shows that Simon is not particularly inclined to treat Jesus with 
honor or hospitality. We don't know what Simon's motivations were for inviting Jesus to this meal. But apparently it was an abundant affection. Look at, so again, verses 44 through 46 say, Jesus says to Simon, I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet. You did not give me a kiss. You did not put oil on my head. And when I first read that, I thought, well, when I go to someone's house, they don't do that stuff, and I don't get upset about it. In fact, if I, if I show up at your house and you start kissing me and pouring oil on my head, I may not come back. <laughs> Same. But, like, what, what's going on? You know, when I was in high school, like, we had to take this required like, home economics class, and one of the units in that class is on etiquette. But it seemed like no one in the school, not the administration, not the home ec teacher, no one really seemed to care all that much about the etiquette unit. Like, it was just one of those things you have to, like, check off a list to make the state happy. It's like, no one seemed to care. It's like our material for that section of the class was super outdated. Like, one of my only vivid memories from high school was sitting in the class, watching a video from, like, the 60s or I don't know when, like, about proper etiquette. And the person on the TV saying the proper way to eat bacon is with a fork and knife. Right? I mean, first of all, like, if the way you make bacon even makes it possible to eat it with a fork and knife, like, you make bacon wrong. Like, bacon should be crunchy enough that like, I can't stick a fork in there. It should just blow into a million pieces. Right? Crispy bacon, where is that? But second, like, who does that? Like, if you invite me over and serve bacon, first, you're like my new favorite person. But second, like, I'm going to eat my bacon with my hands. If that offends you, don't invite me over. Like, who eats bacon with a fork and knife? But, like, apparently back in some distant era, in some... in some parts of hoity-toity culture, like, eating bacon with a fork and knife was the way you did it. Right? All that to say, like, etiquette norms change over time and place. And because we're so far removed from Jesus' time, like, proper etiquette from that time is not super intuitive to us. But part of proper etiquette for Simon as host of this meal, that he should have provided Jesus with water to wash his feet. That's like bare minimum. Like you walk around in sandals and dirty roads all day. Like you invite a guest over, you give them water to wash their feet. If you really want to honor them, you have a servant wash the feet for them. But at the very least, you provide water for them to wash their feet themselves. But Simon didn't do that. Simon also should have anointed Jesus' head. Like they're in this area where there's olive trees everywhere, so olive oil is bountiful. And so the normal way to do this was to just anoint the head with olive oil. Again, if Simon really wanted to honor Jesus, he could have used something more valuable, more expensive. Right? But olive oil was like the minimum kind of base level hospitality act. But Simon didn't do that either. And he should have also like the, the standard greeting for the day was to place one hand on the shoulder and then to give a kiss on the cheek. But Simon didn't do that either. He doesn't do any of these basic hospitality things when he welcomes Jesus. 
he fails to show any level of honor and respect to Jesus. And the reason he does that is because he doesn't sense his need for Jesus. He doesn't feel the need to honor or to show respect to Jesus. Like, Jesus is just a curiosity to Simon. He's a, he's a spectacle to behold, not a savior to be worshipped. But for the sinful woman, the exact opposite is true. And she has this deep sense of need until she responds accordingly. She enters Simon's house. She wets Jesus' feet with her tears and she dries them with her hair. She kisses his feet. She pours perfume on his feet. And then just like think. Put yourself in this woman's shoes and just think of all that she risks doing this act for Jesus. Like first, she risks judgment. Right? As we said before, like she is, her sins are known. Like she, her reputation is in tatter. People know her as the sinful woman. And the last place you would expect to find someone like that is in a Pharisee's house. Like she knew that by showing up in a Pharisee's house, that she was going to face judgment and scorn from many of the people who were gathered at that meal. Just imagine like, what it feel like walking into a room where like, no one's happy to see you. Where everyone thinks you're a bad person. Where everyone is judging you. And that's what she would have experienced walking into this meal. Like, why? Why would this woman show up here? And it's because she knew that honoring Jesus was more important than avoiding the judgmentalism of others. Jesus meeting her great need caused her to do an act of love for Jesus, despite the judgment she faces for it. But not only does she risk judgment, she also risked indignity. She walked into this meal. She walked up behind Jesus. Jesus is kind of laying with his feet up behind him. That's how they ate back then. So his feet are kind of extended behind him. She walked up behind Jesus. And she had this picture in her head of how this is going to go. Like, I'm going to take this oil. I'm going to put it on his feet. The sign of my love and affection. And I'm going to kind of retreat and get out of here. She just wanted to do this simple act of honoring Jesus by anointing his feet with this perfume. But then she gets to the moment and she's overcome with emotion. Like, she starts to cry. She can't stop herself. And she's, soon she's sobbing and there's tears rolling down her cheeks and they're falling on Jesus' feet. And now, not only is she being judged just for being there, but she's also making a scene. Like, she's creating this scene of this woman sobbing at Jesus' feet. And her tears are falling on Jesus' feet. She doesn't know what to do. Like, she's making kind of a mess at his feet with tears run down. And so she, she lets down her hair. And she uses her hair to wash the feet and clean up kind of the mess she's making. But in that time, it was considered scandalous for a woman to let down her hair in public. In fact, like, a man could divorce his wife if she let down her hair in public. And now this woman does that in order to wash Jesus' feet. Here's this woman, like all eyes on her, like sobbing at the feet of Jesus. She's letting down her hair in public. It's an entirely undignified scene. She risks indignity. 
And again, we have to wonder, like, why? Like, she must have known. It was possible. She would break down in tears. Like, she must have felt the emotion welling up. So when she felt those tears coming, why didn't she just bail out of this plan and think of something else to do to honor Jesus? But it's because she knew that worshiping and serving Jesus and responding to what he had done for her was worth a little indignity. So this woman risked judgment and she risked indignity, but she also risked financially for Jesus. Perfume that kept an alabaster jar, so we're told this is, would not have been cheap. It would have been a very valuable perfume. And here she is, like seemingly recklessly, just pouring it out on Jesus' feet. And again, we ask why. Like Certainly a couple of drops would have communicated her devotion to Jesus. But this woman realized like, that Jesus had given her something far more valuable than perfume, far more valuable than money. So she's willing to risk financial security for the sake of honoring Jesus. And so in Simon and in this woman, we have kind of two case studies right, in how to respond to Jesus. We can respond to Jesus with curiosity or indifference, like Simon did, because we believe in that he has nothing that we really need. Right? Or we can respond to him with love and affection and devotion and worship like the sinful woman. And as we've been saying all morning, right, the thing that determines how we will respond is how deeply we sense our need. And so the question then is, like, the question we all must answer at some point, do I really believe that I need Jesus? Not that he's a nice little side benefit of my religious devotion, but do I sense that I need Jesus? Do I really believe that as Paul says in Romans, like all have sinned, including each one of us here, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wage of sin is death. All sin, any sin, is death. And that you can't pay back that price by yourself. Right? Like Dead men don't pay back debts. The wage of sin is death. Do you believe right, that you need Jesus to pay that debt for you? Do you feel that sense of need? And if so, like, there's good news. Colossians 2 says, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Through his death on the cross, Jesus has taken away all the sins of those who place their faith and trust in him. They are nailed to the cross. We are forgiven. So if you're here this morning, you're watching online this morning, and you've never acknowledged that deep sense of need for Jesus, You've never heard him say, your sins are forgiven, like he says to the woman in this passage. Then I would invite you to trust in him. To feel that sense of need. To realize there's nothing you can do in your own power and to place your trust in Jesus. Trusting that he will take away your sins. If you're here, and you, you know you need Jesus. 
if you, like this woman, have trusted in Him, and you know your sins are forgiven, then the question becomes, do your actions show that you know you need Jesus? Do your actions show that you know Jesus has met your great need? Are you, like, like the woman in this passage, willing to risk judgment of others for the sake of honoring Jesus? Are you willing to stand for truth in a time when it's becoming increasingly unpopular? Are you willing to be scorned and judged for holding, quote-unquote, outdated traditional values that the Bible teaches? Are you willing, like the woman in this passage, to risk indignity for the sake of honoring Jesus? Are you willing to tell friends and family members about how great Jesus is, even when you might not have all the answers, even when it might be awkward and embarrassing? Are you willing to be obedient to Jesus? And are you willing, like the woman in this passage, to risk financially for the sake of honoring Jesus? Are you willing to sacrificially give to the church or to other ministries? Are you willing to give up or use up your valued possessions for the sake of honoring Jesus? When we really grasp how desperately we need Jesus, and we really understand like how He came and He died in our place to meet that need, and we really grasp all Jesus did for us, then the answer to those questions will be yes. None of us will be perfect. We're all prone to periods of self-sufficiency, of forgetting how we need Jesus. We all struggle with different parts of this. Like, I know I struggle with risking indignity. I hate being embarrassed. And I'm hesitant to step in this uncomfortable situation to risk being undignified, being seen as undignified for the sake of Jesus. I'm slow to tell people about Jesus because they might think I'm out of touch. That we won't be perfect. Which is why the fact that Jesus has forgiven our sins is so precious. But, even we won't be perfect. As we read God's Word, as we feel the weight of our sins, we should increasingly be reminded of how desperately we need Jesus. And that desperate need should drive us to acts of thanksgiving and of praise and devotion to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that despite what our sinful natures tell us, sometimes we are desperately in need of you, that apart from you we can do nothing, there's no breath we can breathe, no step we can take apart from you. But even more than that, we are desperate for a way for our sin to be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with you. We know that we cannot do that in our own power. We acknowledge that we desperately need Jesus to be our Savior. And we praise you, we 
thank you that you've done that for us, that you've sent Jesus, that Jesus, you came and you lived a sinless life and yet you died on the cross so that through your death and through our faith in you, our sins can be taken away. We can be forgiven. Jesus, you are our only hope of salvation. You did the very thing we most desperately needed. Let us not lose sight of that. That we, in response to all you've done for us in Jesus, that we live lives that show how grateful we are. That show how amazing the gift of Jesus was. Would you be honored? Would you be glorified in our lives? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you go from here, would you go feeling and knowing your deep need for Jesus, but also confident that Jesus has done all that was needed on your behalf, and that through faith in Him, your sins are forgiven. You are dismissed.